this guy did a big long-term survey of the effect of anger on people. What he found was that anger was fundamentally good in most cases because it gave people the energy to address things. But his other finding was if, if you're angry at someone around you, you can deal with it. But if you get angry at, at someone who you have no relationship with or who's distant or at some disembodied ideal, you stay angry and you don't have any way to get that energy out. And so what happened was advertisers first, then in the political world, they took that information and weaponized it. So what's happened in America, the biggest bias in media is not left and right, it's toward anger and outrage. And much of the programming is designed to make you angry at things that you can't change so that you will stay angry. <laughs> For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. All right, everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Paul Swearingen, the nonpartisan evangelical, they call me around here, and we're going to have a great conversation today. Hope you are safe. Hope you're wearing a freaking mask for the love of God when you go out. How hard is that? And, and, and honestly, let me say, if you're, if you're worried about dying from breathing in your own breath, wearing a mask, talk to a surgeon who does eight hours of surgery with a mask on, talk to the guy that does my yard and wears a mask all day. They're not dropping like flies. I promise you the mask will not kill you, but not wearing it can kill you or kill somebody else right now. So just wear a mask. It's not that hard. And I was happy to see the president over the weekend finally wear a mask. And so that was great. Let me introduce our guest and get him into the conversation as well. Tony Stolzfus is an author of a dozen books that have sold over a quarter of a million copies. One that he really loves is Heaven's Perspective, where he takes people's story and rewrites them from Heaven's Perspective, which I love that concept. He's also a coach that leads a, a large training school with 11 sites worldwide, although they're not doing too many in-person conferences right now. But Tony Stolzfus is our guest. And one more thing I'll say is Tony has been instrumental in, in my life and who I am today. And so I give him a wholehearted endorsement. And that may be an endorsement, Tony, or that may be an indictment, uh, depending on, on uh, what the audience is. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thanks for being with us today. And, uh, and you and I have known each other for a while. You work out of, out of Reading. We've been friends. And, and so I've just been interested recently. It seems like you're starting to, to turn up some conversation that has a, what some people would say a political tinge, but uh, it, it seems like you're starting to speak into some of our cultural issues today. And so where did, where did that come from in you and, and, and from you? Well, okay, I'm from Mennonite background. My grandfather left the Amish as a teenager. My Mennonites are non-resistant, so my father in the Korean War did 1W service in a hospital after he was drafted. And, but I've, so my heritage, my parents are both educators. So my heritage is there I've spent most of my life in conservative evangelical churches. And so there's, I've spent my life struggling with this tension between my heritage and my (laughs) current situation. But as the, the whole thing with COVID has come up, the explosion of misinformation around it and the Black Lives Matter thing, I reached a point where I have spent most of my life in ministry being all things to all men. I work with Baptists and I work with Pentecostals, but I started to feel like if I don't speak up in this time, I'm being complicit with some things that go on in our society that, that I don't believe in. And it's a risk for someone in ministry like me, because when you start to speak about controversial issues, people, some people don't like it. And I've steered away from that for most of my life. But, you know, like the mask wearing thing, I'm 59, I'm diabetic, I'm a high risk individual. So we're taking this really seriously. I've been to like the lumber yard, the pharmacy and the grocery store. (laughs) But, you know, my take on mask wearing is just if you're around me or in my world and you wear a mask, I just want to thank you. Because if I get this, my chance of serious health problems is high. And I could die. This is the riskiest thing in my life right now would be to have a chance encounter with someone who has this. And so I'm just thankful for people who wear a mask. And your mask, it protects you, but it mostly protects other people from you. If you have this, you don't know. So to me as a Christian, if I have the opportunity to suffer a minor inconvenience to save somebody's life, why would I not do that? So what do you see in in your coach? And so you have insight into sort of our personalities and and the the way we live. And and what do you see in our culture now that has even, even a mask becoming a political issue, even racial tension is driving people to their corners? Is there something you can point to in our culture that's, that's sort of causing the division that, that we all see and we're all kind of talking about? Well, I think this goes back to an interesting place and a number of, I forget if this was in the 60s or 70s or whenever, but at that point, very little study had been done on anger. And so, this guy did a big long-term survey of the effect of anger on people. 
And most people, you know, at that time and probably since think of anger as something that's bad. But what he found was that anger was fundamentally good in most cases because it gave people the energy to address things. But his other finding that was very interesting was if, if you're angry at someone around you, you can deal with it. But if you get angry at, at someone who you have no relationship with or who's distant or at some disembodied ideal, you stay angry and you don't have any way to get that energy out. And so what happened was advertisers first, then in the political world, they took that information and weaponized it and said, oh, people, if I can get them angry at something out there, they will stay angry and stay in my orbit. So what's happened in America, the biggest bias in media is not left and right, it's toward anger and outrage. And much of the farther you go to either edge of the media spectrum, the programming is designed to make you angry at things that you can't change so that you will stay angry. <laughs> and if you look at Facebook right now, there's 750 or so big advertisers boycotting them and they don't change. Well, why? Well, because their whole business model is based on engagement. And people engage when they're angry and frustrated and outraged. So Facebook has a financial incentive to keep people upset, <laughs> to keep the inflammatory content out there because it raises engagement. Another great example of this is political advertising. We all bemoan, you know, one of the things I hate most about election season is one negative ad after another, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, we vote our fears. We don't vote yeah. our hopes. And so that's what the research shows. And so politics has weaponized that. So for Christians, the thing that we have been very naive about is that we don't understand the spirit behind the media that we receive. And somebody may be standing up for something we believe in, you know, for abortion, for, you know, Christian persecution, but we don't discern the emotional content of what's behind that. And as someone who works with people's hearts and helps them bring their emotions un into the <laughs> dominion of Jesus, Christians are so naive about the emotional input to their life and how it makes them angry people. Wow. So that's where I think a lot of this comes from. You're, you're speaking my language now, and I, I, I have a, a blog on my website at npepodcast.com about how in, in my life, I, I just felt uh, we might call it, you know, God giving us a, a message or somebody else might just say something in my conscience started saying, hey, this listening to Rush Limbaugh for two to three hours a day isn't serving me well. And so I, I gave it up for a, for a week and was amazed. I, I got to tell you, in, in, in seven days, I was stunned at the impact it had 
on my on my life and mentality. And so I, I never went back to being a heavy consumer of right wing media. And I think you're probably right. It's on both sides. But I, you know, I can only talk to my people. And I, I really think this right wing media and then now it's really evolved into sort of these conspiracy theory web presences that that have a, a really outsized influence into our community in the Christian and evangelical community. And, and I think you're right. I think it affects how we look at people, how we interact with culture and how we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I definitely encourage, and I've actually done this as a pastor in my 10 years when I was pastoring, I would tell people that really had sort of a dark view of the world, like, Hey, let's, let's give up that media for a bit and see how that impacts you. But, but what, when we start, I, I, you, you and I had exchanged email and you were talking about how if our, our hope starts to be placed in these things, in conspiracies, in, in politics, that we're going to be disappointed. It's not going to have the outcome that we want. Tell us more about that. Okay, so there's this fundamental principle in Scripture. What, what we, the ministry that we do is based on the idea of desire. And it's not, we're not using the word the way most people are familiar with it. The idea is you have deep desires psychological desires for things like security, love, significance, belonging, approval. And those desires shape a lot of your behavior. So in order to change your behavior, you have to change something with desire. And the beautiful thing about it that I love in ministry is you you don't deal with desires biblically, those kind of desires, by denying them because they were designed to be filled in your relationship with God. So what we do in ministry is show people how to detach their desires from things in this world and reattach them to Jesus in a really practical way. So that's, that's the whole desire methodology. I have a book on it called The Invitation, but it's, we're not talking about desire like I want a car. Okay, why do you want a car? What would it give you if you had a car? Well, I could get to work every day. Well, what would it give you if you could get to work? Well, then I'd feel secure. I, I won't lose my job. I, that's the desire underneath wanting a car. And Jesus may or may not give you the car, but he's very interested in giving you security. So the converse of this is there's this law of twisted desire that if you attach your desire to a thing or a person or an outcome in this world, it actually works against you to keep you from getting what you really want. So for instance, if you've been in a small group system, you've probably always experienced, all of you have experienced the person who's super needy who comes to your small group and they pour out their heart about all the terrible things that are happening in their life. And, and so you minister to them. And then the next week they come back and, five more things have happened and woe is me. And your whole small group turns into a um, feeding emotional energy down into this sucking hole. <laughs> and when I'll ask groups, okay, so is that attractive in that person or does that repel you? And pretty much everybody says it repels them because they're trying to take something from you. So what happens to us in the world, and this is in James 4, if you want to read it, James 4, 1 to 5, is when James talks about 
loving the world, he's talking about having the desire of your heart attached to a thing or an object or a person. And when you do that, it actually works against you to keep you from getting what you really want. So the more Christians put their hope in a political party, in a president, in a representative, whoever, the more they invest themselves in that worldly outcome, the more it will work against their peace and against Christianity. So I think the more we've aligned ourselves with republicanism, the more we've lost the culture war because we've put our hope in government to bring in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God does not work that way. <laughs> you cannot bring in the kingdom of God using the power structures of this world. That's why Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight. So you can't bring in the kingdom that way, but we've tried to do that. We've tried to create a Christian America, but it's boomeranged against us, particularly with the young. So now all the democratic demographic trends are against our picture of a Christian nation because we haven't attached our hope to God. We've attached it to a picture in this world. Um. Hi everybody. This is Paul. Let me interrupt this great conversation with Tony Stolfus to give you a couple of quick offers for being able to follow along and be a part of this nonpartisan evangelical community. We want to offer to the world a better, less exclusive, less divisive way to practice your spirituality, love of Jesus, and honor to God than the evangelical church we're seeing today. And we want you to be a part of that and spreading the message that God is not mad at you to the world. And one way you can do that is by joining our nonpartisan evangelical insiders list. This is an email you'll get. I'm not going to spam you too much. You may get one or two a week that will just tell you things going on with the nonpartisan evangelical community. So go to my website, npepodcast.com, right up towards the top. You'll see sign up for that NPE insiders list. And if you do it today, I'm going to give you a gift. It's an ebook called The Making of Joseph. It's all about how I wrote my new novel, Joseph Comes to Town. And in the ebook, it contains the first three chapters of the book absolutely free. So you get that just for signing up with the in insiders list if you sign up today. I want you to go do that. Go to NPPodcast.com, look for that insiders list button, hit it, give me your email address. I'll give you the ebook right away for you to download for free. Here's the other thing I want to do. Another way you can help support the nonpartisan evangelical is by joining our NPE Patreon community. Now, this is where there's a small fee. The, the lowest is $5.99 a month. If you sign up at the $12.99 a month level, we'll send you a free autographed copy of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town. And you'll get to be part of special gatherings. Just this last week, we had a one-on-one uh, -on -one with um, Ashley and me and all of our Patreon people. And they got to ask us questions. We told them what was going on. And you get to hear the audiobook series of the novel as we load it up. We're loading it up in segments. And all of that is available to our patrons on the NPE Patreon page. How do you sign up for there? Go to the website, npepodcast.com, in that upper right corner. 
It says join us on Patreon. Click that button. It'll give you instructions of what to do. Again, it's just $5.99 a month. If you sign up at $12.99 a month, the secondary level, you get more cool stuff and we'll give you a free autographed copy of my novel. Pretty good stuff, huh? So go to the website, npepodcast.com, sign up for the insiders list and join us on our Patreon page. And here's another gift I'm going to give you. Don't tell anybody. But the first person to sign up on our Patreon page and say, I heard this announcement on the podcast with Tony, we're going to give you your first three months on Patreon free. First three months free, and we'll give you the autographed copy of the book. That's for the first person who signs up at at least the $5.99 level and then sends me a message saying, hey, I heard it on Tony's podcast or on the podcast with Tony. I want my free three months. Okay? NPEpodcast.com is the website, insiders list, Patreon. Those are the buttons you want to click and get you going along with the nonpartisan evangelical community so the world can know that God is not mad at them. Now back to this great conversation with my good friend, Tony Stofus. You're going to love the rest of what you have to hear. Thanks for being a part of the nonpartisan evangelical community at NPEpodcast.com. I do have people that, that aren't Christian and churchgoers necessarily who follow this podcast. Say more about that concept of the kingdom of God. What is, what is the kingdom of God to, to people here on earth? Okay. Sounds very esoteric and way out there somewhere. (laughs) I think, I mean, there are different ways you could speak about the kingdom of God. You can speak in terms of the indwelling spirit and all this, but a simple way to understand it is that it's the, the part of life where Jesus is in charge, (laughs) which after you die, it either expands to your whole life or collapses to nothing. (laughs) But for instance, when I suffer, our house burned down a couple years ago in one of the California forest fires. And that was one of the, I wrote about it on Facebook and I got more Facebook likes for talking about my suffering than anything I ever had. But the point there is when I suffer and meet Jesus in it, I'm taking the sufferings of this world and bringing them into under Jesus's control. So when I suffer in a godly way, the kingdom of God expands in this world. When I give my allegiance to love instead of to hate, the kingdom of God expands in this world. When I help other people and sacrifice for them as opposed to putting myself first and living that way. The, the kingdom of Jesus expands. So I, is that answering your question? Yeah. And and I think sort of tangibly, I, I do think the message of Jesus was this, this idea of our desires of a, of a healthy way to have, our safety, our, our need or our desire for safety and value to be met. And that people who are doing that in a really healthy way from a Christian perspective in connection with this life modeled by Jesus, then we're going we're gonna to start to value that safety and, and value in others. And we're going, and that's going to start to flow out of us, if I can say, I'm going to be engaged in making sure other people have 
shalom, to use a really beautiful spiritual word. They're going to have this fullness and this fullness of well-being in their life. And the, so to me, the kingdom of God is this concept of, of a healthy way to find our value and safety and, and then spreading that to others. And some have started to believe that value and safety is going to happen when America is has a law banning abortion and a law banning gay marriage. And, and I'm, I'm with you. I think that's, that's sort of a twisted desire and not necessarily the way we're actually going to see this, this safety and value happen where these outgrowths of things like, that we don't like, like abortion or something else grow out of it. So anyway, I guess the kingdom of God to me is just people in very healthy ways seeking safety and value and, and, and finding ways to share that with others. Would it help if I take two minutes and unpack that passage in James in terms of, do you, do you need the biblical stuff? <laughs> I don't know that we have to go there too much, but uh, if you think it would be helpful to explain the concept. Yeah, I, the, the passage James 4 is what causes wars and fightings among you? Okay, what causes interpersonal conflict and what causes national conflict? It's your desires, your epithemia in Greek, that are at war in your members. And the interesting thing there is the word epithemia is not necessarily a bad word. For instance, when Jesus says, my desire is that they might be with me where I am to behold the glory you gave me before the foundation of the world, that word for desire is epithemia. And at the last supper, when Jesus says with great desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you, that's epithemia epithemeo. <laughs> So desire is not a bad thing. You right. can do bad things with your desires. And James says, well, you, you don't have what you desire, so you covet and you kill. And then his solution is fascinating. You don't have because you don't ask, which is one hmm. of the most misquoted passages in the Bible. What you need to do is put in the nouns from the context. You don't have your desire because you don't ask God for your desire. Instead, oh, wow. you ask him for something in this world. Sorry about that. That's okay. A little phone ringing going on. Uh, That's yeah. okay. We can edit it out. Just okay. wait. Wait till it stops ringing. Okay. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I should have unplugged that. I forgot. Somebody really wants my attention. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so the solution is you don't ask Jesus for a thing. You don't ask him for a Christian culture in our nation. You say, Jesus what I really want is security. What I really want is to feel safe. Jesus, how am I safe in you right now? Mm -hmm. And you invite him to speak to your heart, the thing that your heart desires. And what you'll find as you do that is your need for the thing in this world starts to diminish. So this is a fundamental, this is what the cross is in a lot of Christian life is I detach my heart from the world and I say, what's behind that? Why do I want a house in the country on a mountaintop? This, this is me. Because I like to see far. It gives me this expansive, it connects with my <laughs> significance. Okay, well, Jesus, how am I significant 
in you. Or Jesus, if I never did another thing for you for the rest of my life, how would you still see me as significant? And when you feed on that, it, it lowers your need to grasp something in this world and hang on to it. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, think, I think the message of the Bible that, man, maybe we miss it a little bit. You know, Jesus' mission statement was, I've come to make blind eyes see and set those in bondage free. And when that gets sort of put into a context of either let's get people to stop sinning by giving them a set of rules to follow, or as we're kind of talking about today, well, we're going to impose some political power so we can enforce safety. There's diminishing returns to either of those. It actually doesn't, doesn't get the result that, that we want. But, but if we're actually saying, hey, let's, let's find out what's keeping people tied up in ways that cause them to, to walk into aberrant behavior, then we can really make a difference. And, and to me, that is the kingdom advancing on earth. All right. All right. So I think we got a good, uh, good, good solution on that. And, and, and so part of that I see is the church is trying to, the, when I say the church, I mean the big C collection of Christian people in America. We're, we're trying to gain safety by garnering political power. And, and, and that's not, not going to get us there. And, and interestingly, then in the midst of this, as you and I have been communicating, you had a dream. And this may be a little bit foreign concept for somebody listening here, but but we do, many people believe sometimes dreams have sort of a, a mystical meaning beyond uh, just this universe. And this was on Easter Sunday. You had a dream that that very much pertains to the season of history that we're in and, and the political infighting and all that. And what do you want to tell us a little bit about that dream that drove you to, to sit down and type it up and, and send it to people like me? Well, I'm not much of a, how do I say, I'm not the person who's always the spiritual whatever that's going on. You know, I'm You're not a here. mystical prophet in a cave no, somewhere. No, I'm not. But I woke up with this on my mind, and it felt very significant and different than other dreams that I've had. And it had to do with, the, with where our country was going. And for instance, one of the things I felt like God was saying was this season of quarantine is a blessing for you. It's going to teach you practically how to, to give up your own rights for the sake of the community. Because the reason you quarantine is to keep other people from being infected. The reason you wear a mask is to help other people. So God's purpose in this, God doesn't cause I don't think God sent us a pandemic, but God will certainly make good use of it. But his purpose in this, in the isolation, one of them is to say, you need to refocus on living your life for others and not just for yourself. So one of the things that came out in the dream was the more you kick back against these restrictions, the worse it will go for you as a nation. Wow. And that was back in April. And if you look at us now in July, that's pretty much exactly what's happened is the two countries in the world that have most refused mask wearing have been the U.S. and the U.K. And we're two of the worst countries for given our resources. We are not doing well. Just go online and look at the graphs that compare the U.S. 
outbreaks to the rest of the world. And we are exceptional in how poor we're doing. <laughs> American exceptionalism, we're number one in COVID cases in the world. And another aspect of that dream was just the idea that the gift of America is not to be number one. The gift, of, the, the gift that God put in our culture, I think one of the biggest ones is hope. We, we believe for a better future. We, we believe that you are somebody and your life is valuable and you can be whatever you, know, you aspire to. That's the, the whole heart of our identity as Americans is that American dream of I'm somebody and if I set out to do something, I can do it. And so God does not measure us by how many Olympic medals we win or <laughs> what the size of our economy is or any of those things. What God measures us as a nation by is what did you do with the gift that I gave you? How much are you bringing hope to the world that every individual matters, that everyone can be anything? How much are you bringing hope to people? So when I see us do things like buying the entire supply of, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name of that drug, Remis. Remisphere or Remidsphere, yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, that's nice. We put America first. What the rest of the world sees is selfishness. And right. we are not functioning according to what God, the gift that God has given us. He didn't give us resources to hoard them all. He, you know, we're to be a supply to the world. We're to be a gift of hope to the world. And we as Christians need to refocus around instead of living our fears, which are mostly about us living out of the gift that God gave us culturally to bring hope to the world. Oh, it's so good. Um, to, to start to evaluate ourselves based on God's gift not based on all this other political stuff. So good. This is Tony Stolzfus, who is an author of uh, the book Heaven's Perspective and a coach talking about kind of this search for safety and value and how it's impacting our politics. And so in what you just said, unpacking that a little bit in this idea of our desire for safety and value is good, and that's a good desire in us. And, and then we'll have diminishing returns if we sort of do that in a restrictive or a way to try to overpower someone to gain that. We're in this place where some are saying, oh, there are people who hate America. You know, you're either you hate America or you're this big America first. Or saying that is prevalent in our history that said America is great because she's good. And when she ceases to be good, she'll no longer be great. And so I hear some of what you're saying, and that is our, our greatness is, is found in our ability to be generous with who we are to the world. Yeah. Uh, isn't that interesting? And, and you had this other concept of a blessing economy, that wanting our economy to be good and, and vibrant isn't bad, but, but that capitalism needs to be about blessing others. Tell us more about that concept. Well, most of Christians assume that God is a capitalist, at least Western <laughs> Christians. And if you bring up the idea that he's not, <laughs> people have a total freak out. But if you think about it, 
capitalism is a system to distribute resources among people based on scarcity. And there's some good things about it and there's some bad things about it. It's a structure of this world that will pass away. <laughs> but the early church didn't function based on the assumptions of a capitalist economy. For instance, one of our fundamental assumptions as Americans is people get what they deserve economically. If you're poor, it's your fault. You didn't work hard. We don't think about whether there was systemic racism that impeded you or, you know, our, our political party won, you know, tough luck to you. We had more votes and we don't think about that. Gosh, there's, there's one state where I think one in seven black people are disenfranchised because of the way the criminal justice system targets more blacks than whites. So anyway, there's all kinds of examples of that, but the fundamental American belief is you get what you deserve. So when we get into a situation like this pandemic, what we tend to do is apply that belief and say, okay, we need to protect business. We need to protect, you know, and if you, <laughs> how do I say, if you're, you're homeless and you're not working, well, then you shouldn't get any stuff. Or if you're, if you're an illegal immigrant, we shouldn't, you shouldn't get any funds. Or if you're poor, you should get less because we don't want to pay you more than you get from working. And so our bias is toward our fundamental belief, which is that people get what they deserve. That's not what the Bible says. <laughs> I hear people quote all the time. If you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah, the race is not to the swift. <laughs> One thing people don't understand about the Bible, you know, as Americans, and I, it was a revelation to me, is that in the economy of Palestine in Jesus's day, 90% of the people were poor. 40% of the people were living below a subsistence level. In other words, 40% of the people, the closest analog in our society for them would be the homeless, where they're not sure where the next meal is coming. 40% of the population. Wow. Another 25% was just above subsistence level. And the, you know, the last 30% was, you know, they're pretty comfortable that, that I'm okay and I can get my next meal. But this is the context that, that the church is in. So when we as Americans read the Bible, we have a tendency to read a statement like, let him who will not work, let him not eat in an American context, as opposed to in a context where <laughs> it's totally different. But, but to get back to your question, sorry, I got a little far. No, it's good. It's good. The idea of a blessing economy in the New Testament church was they allocated their resources to bless people, not according to who deserved to have more. So everybody had property and it was their own to dispose of. The Bible's very clear about that, you know, Peter says to, to Ananias and Sapphira, hey, wasn't this yours? Couldn't you do whatever you wanted with it? So it was their own property, but they sold income-producing property and brought it for the disenfranchised. One really interesting thing about the New Testament church is when they, the Greek widows were being neglected in the distribution, and so they said, let's get some deacons to be in charge of the distribution so that it's fair. 
every one of those deacons has a Greek name. So what they did was they took the disenfranchised population and gave them the power to right the wrong. Wow. So think about applying that in racial affairs in America. Wow, wow, wow. People, that scares us. <laughs> and, and that was within the church and not, you know, whatever. But that's the kind of way that the New Testament church saw societal life. And to see it in terms of America first, and that's not a biblical posture. It's not even close. Wow. Yeah, and you think about so a lot of the parables of Jesus talked about sort of business prosperity and having success in business, uh, parables of the minas or talents or those things. But then it has to be put in the context of, you know, Acts chapter 2, that church, they all sold their possessions and gave to each as they had need. So the, the prosperity was so that everybody could be provided for, not so the person that, that worked hard and prospered could be taken care of. And, and, and isn't it true, Tony? I, I mean, the, the religious people of Jesus, they, they had that belief system that we're, we have resources because we're blessed by God. We're, we're righteous, and therefore God is blessing us, and that poor person must not be doing what God wants him or her to do, and, and that's why they're poor. And it seems that's a little bit of our belief system today. And Jesus was pretty clear about that. <laughs> the Tower of Siloam that fell on those 13 or 17 guys, was it because they were the worst sinners in Israel? No. <laughs> It's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus was speaking against that cultural belief and saying, no, this is not the way we view things in the kingdom of God. I, I want to say one thing just personally, because it's easy to talk about this kind of stuff in the abstract and not, and I want to say this by way of challenge, when, when the COVID thing happened, in March and the lockdowns began, a lot of people got laid off. And we have a group of people in our organization and, and our product is in-person workshops, you know? <laughs> so our business just stopped. <laughs> Your business model was put on hold. Yes. But for me, my income is from book sales, which didn't stop. And I had resources. So we went out and hired several new people we decided instead of trusting the government stimulus plan and the government's loans, we were going to have our own stimulus plan. So we hired five people in March <laughs> and they're all part-time and some of them were projects. But for me, it was like, I am not going to react to this out of fear. And according to capitalist norms, Oh, you know, <laughs> the economy's bad, hoard your money, whatever. I'm going to, live according to a blessing economy and take my resources for people who can't work. And, and yeah, I have a vested interest. It's people in my organization, but my challenge to you is, are you thinking like an American economically? Or are you thinking like a Christian? Because if you want to think like a Christian, giving and generosity is at the heart of what we do, not accumulating wealth. And our culture highly elevates accumulating wealth. Mm -hmm. That's not particularly a biblical 
goal. Well, so you're you're preaching some tough stuff for people now, and uh, and so just hear what's what's being said there. And and I really think you know when we have these these argument, you know, I know Christians are very opposed to taxation right now, and we we scream about that a lot, and so are the Pharisees. And trust me, I hire an accountant every year, and he makes sure that I pay the least amount of taxes that I legally have to pay. And so I, I want to put that out there. But I think some of these issues would be taken care of if we followed exactly what you're talking about. And, and that generosity of our capitalism would start to take care of people where there wouldn't be this need that we sort of culturally determined governmentally to meet. And, and so I think the two are somewhat intertwined. And if we changed our mindset about that thing, then we could start to fix these other things a little bit. Well, interesting stuff, Tony. I, I really appreciate that. And so now you started talking about race relations there. And that's a big one in this, in this season of time. And it's a difficult one for people in churches. You wrote an article that, that I got to see about a friend of yours that had an encounter with police that, that wasn't pleasant. And, and that spurred you to, to speak out about that. So tell us more about that. Well, do you want me to give away the ending? Or <laughs> yeah, sure. Give away the end. Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> Basically, I wrote a, a a short article that said, "Okay, I have a friend that went through the kind of thing that that you know the black community is talking about, and it changes the way you look at things when you know someone personally." And and look, I'm white. I've lived mostly in rural communities in my life. There's not. <sighs> There's not a ton of racial diversity in my local world. There's a lot more in my international sphere, but but basically, the in this story, my friend is he was arrested by a corrupt official because they didn't like the way he was speaking out about societal issues. He was arrested in the middle of the night by people with clubs and lights and making a show of force. They interrogated him all night. There was no lawyer present. There was no due process. He was, it, it turned out that, that the person who was the witness against him was actually paid for his testimony. Wow. Uh, <laughs> then they brought him before the court and, you know, one of the judges was ready to let him off, but you know, the, the, how do I say the, the powers that be twisted his arm and, you know, my friend, then they start talking about capital punishment and, you know, and my friend did absolutely nothing wrong to deserve this. Now the reveal at the end of the story is this is Jesus. And in crucifixion, basically you, you suffocate you, the, the posture of crucifixion puts your lungs filled with fluid. It puts pressure on you and you get to the place where you can't breathe. So Jesus died a lot like George Floyd did. And for us as Christians, we have to reckon with the fact that, that these people are saying I'm being treated like your Jesus did was one of the things that just, greatly saddened me, you know, a decade or so ago was there was this whole torture debate. I think it was during the Bush administration 
and a poll was taken and more American Christians supported torturing people than the American populace at large. Hmm. Now think about that for a minute. We have a savior who was tortured to death for us. And yet we support torturing other people to protect us. And Jesus already paid that price. <laughs> and we don't need we don't need to mistreat terrorists. We don't need to take their due process away. We don't because that's not our protection. So I have not, you know, I'm no exemplar of race relations. <laughs> and but I do need to speak what I can. And what I can is I know somebody personally who got treated like this and he's a dear friend of mine and I don't want to see anybody treated that way. Wow. I can see the emotion that's coming from that for you. Where, where is that? Where's that emotion coming from? I'm an emotional person. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's close to my heart. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's easy to live in a white world and never see any of this stuff. I mean, it, it just, you know, people talked about it and I heard it, but it wasn't real to me. And I think one of the things we can do as Christians is just take Jesus's story and put it in contemporary language. He had no lawyer. He had no advocate on his behalf. He was unjustly accused. <laughs> people were bribed to, turn him over to the authorities. They brought in false witnesses against him. And, and think about that in terms of what happens in our country. If you're one statistic I got that really, I saw this, I think it was in uh, the Veggie Tales guy did a video about this, but that if you're born as a black male baby, you have a one in four chance in your lifetime of going to prison. And I was like, oh, my God, where did we do that? If you're white, you have a one in 23 chance. Well, that's better, but oh, my gosh. Still high. One in 20 Americans going to jail in their lifetime. Holy crap. <laughs> Where's the church there? We got to do something about it. And honestly, I'm not sure what to do. My, my ministry is about emotional health, but I need to find something. Maybe we'll take people getting out of prison and rewrite their stories from heaven's perspective, or I don't know what. But I'm going to find something where my unique ability and deposit and gift can touch that in a positive way. Maybe I'll find a way to do emotional healing with police officers who, who see stuff that no human being should ever see and have to go home and live with all that. Yeah. Wow. Well, just doing that, what you can in your sphere, is a great start. And, and even more so just having your heart soft and broken toward it. If that can challenge other church-going people or other people in general to, to have their heart broken. I, I've been talking about Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews chapter 3 in recent days, and this idea of don't let your heart be hardened 
as your fathers were in the desert and and this idea of having hard hearts. And I think this is a, a moment in history where we have a choice to either let our hearts be softened and feel the pain of brothers and sisters and fellow citizens, fellow Americans around us, or we harden our heart. And every time you harden your heart, it becomes a little bit more difficult to see what's happening around you. So I love this comparison of what Jesus suffered, which was the worst imaginable death, and, and, and tying that to the treatment of, of our, our black and brown friends around us, because I think that's a powerful message to ask people to consider, hey, you know somebody that's been treated like this. If you're a Christian, yeah. the most important person in your life was treated like this. Hmm, it's interesting. And he was an oppressed person with the Jewish people under Roman tyranny, but he turned, he I'm sorry. Alien in a foreign country when he was a baby. Yeah. He was an yeah. immigrant. Yeah. And yet he turned to the other oppressed people in his culture, the Samaritans who were looked down upon by the Jews and oppressed, or the adulterous woman who, as you said, she had no other ability to make a living than to give up her body. He looked at those oppressed people and said, that's my job, is to sit with those people and fight for them. And so if that's the guy we're following, that should be our model, right? Yeah. So don't, I mean, my, my admonition would be don't fight to change our whole country. Don't fight to get social media to see things a certain way. Take your world and your gift and fight in that sphere for the people around you to be blessed, to be treated better, to be honored. Don't, don't be defined by what you're against. Be defined by what you're for. Now, that's good. That's good. I was going to ask you to summarize what this dream and all this stuff means and what you're calling people to. I think you just, you just did. Yeah. Wow. So that's really great. You know what I would love for you to do? I, I, you know, however you feel comfortable to do this, give a word of encouragement, pray for us, for those listening and just whatever feels best to you. What, what, what would you like to do to encourage us as we finish up this conversation? Well, I think what I'd like to do is give you some questions to ask Jesus and what I've found my percentage of my personally, my percentage of answered prayer went up about a thousand percent when I started praying this way, because I realized it, my takeaway was Jesus is much more interested in talking about my relationship with him than about what I'm doing or all this stuff out there. So these are questions that you can ask Jesus and just listen to your heart. I, I give people 30 seconds or so to listen when I give them this question, because the first thing that comes to you is usually the best. And it's really hard when you ask this kind of question to get a wrong answer. So a question would be, Jesus, how, how are you being my security today? Jesus, how are you being my security today? Hmm. So people could even pause this podcast right now and ask that question. A second one is, Jesus, if all my hopes for our country turn to ashes, what will you do for me? A third one is, Jesus, how are you giving me peace? 
that passes what I understand about what's happening in the world. Yeah. I have a mobile app that's free called questions for Jesus that has a whole bunch of examples of this in it. So feel free and get the app. It takes every passage in Matthew where Jesus speaks to a desire and gives you questions to ask Jesus. And that's available on iTunes or Google play. Yeah. Okay. All right. Questions for Jesus. Well, that's Tony Stolfos, author and coach. He has a dozen books out there. One of them is Heaven's Perspective, which is a great one. He does coaching around the world and uh, brought a great challenge and encouragement for us today. And just really love you're bringing this admonishment, though, with this gentle heart. I think it's pretty easy for people to hear, even, even if it's a tough thing. So, Tony, thanks for sharing that with us today. You're welcome.